This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Now, economies have been slowing and we've seen the consequences, not least in our choice of politicians and the rise to the far right. But what if growth stopped altogether? Or what if we realised it has to stop because there's only so many resources on the planet? Something the Club of Rome has been arguing about since the late 60s. We'll look at a post-growth economy today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, Steve, so Steve, this is another one from one of our listeners. Peter Verhoeven suggests we look at steady state economics and the post-growth economy. So it, the question is, what happens when growth does stop? I mean, we, I guess we can look at Japan, can't we? Because there's not been a lot of growth there since the, the mid-90s. And what has been the consequence of that? Uh, they've got a GDP per capita, which is below the OECD average. And yet their education standards are much higher than average. But if you look at the OECD Better Life Index, their life satisfaction scores are four compared to, for example, seven in the UK. Yes, in the UK. So uh, they're not too happy in Japan. So is that because they don't have economic growth? And does that mean if we want to be happy, we need economic growth? Is, is it essential for our well-being? No, in fact, the whole idea of the, 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 the post-growth society is talking about a, a world in which we our target for production is that we, we we continue supporting the population we have without increasing the amount of resources we're using and, in fact, trying to go backwards in the use of resources. So that would uh, mean a GDP growth of zero, wouldn't it? Yes. That's that's the whole target of the, the post-growth movement is to say that we should abandon the quest for economic growth. We've had too much economic growth. What we need to do is to redistribute and to uh, and, and to slowly move to the point where we the, the GDP, the the, in terms of the amount of resources we drag out of the uh, biosphere and the amount of waste we bump into it, and in fact, when that's back in balance, and that would mean no growth. But it the, isn't a, but the isn't reason a, for growth that's often touted is that it improves our living standards. Uh, you know, growth means more people are employed, they spend more, so we spend more, we actually have a, a, a better quality of life at the end of it. That, that, that's the reason given, isn't it? Well, the real reason, and this is, again comes back to the energy thing, is we're consuming more energy to, to do the same things we used to do in the past, and we're using uh, non-human energy to do that, and it gives us a great degree of comfort that didn't exist in the past. So, uh, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure you have an electric toothbrush. Yeah. Okay. Because um, <laughs> it, got- it's so tiresome, isn't it? Brushing up and down, up and down, up and down. You and I are old enough to do that with the, with the, with, with the kids. Must think we're ridiculous, uh, but but that's that's what's happened. We've replaced all these systems which used to be in human labour in some manual sense yeah. with with machines, which means they've got to use energy, and that's and that actually does mean you know, if you had, you had a choice between using the old 
manual toothbrush and an electric one, I know which one we'd both go so for. So you Frank. make an interesting point there because I was going to make the point that actually uh, are we any better off uh, but we but we still have a better life because um, uh, like, I, you know, I, 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 because a lot of what's improved your life is has been invention. So I've got, you know, a bigger TV, a nicer car. Um, you know, I've got uh, more gadgets that make my life that little bit more bearable. Um, but I'm not necessarily earning any more than perhaps I, you know, in real terms than than I was, um, you know, ten or twenty years ago. It's just that innovation has moved forwards. But as you're pointing yeah. out, a lot of that innovation is very energy dependent. Some of it, Extreme. of course, is using less energy to do things. Though, for example, my car yeah. uses less energy than because uh, it's a Prius uses less energy than a car twenty years ago would have done. For example. Yeah, I mean, there are, but the, the, the whole issue is can you actually decouple? Can you continue to get increasing living standards uh, with a constant use of energy? And this is one of the mm. terms which is used regularly, and this is what they call decoupling. So you decouple uh, GDP itself from energy consumption on the target of the of the no growth movement. And I'm, I could be wrong on some of these points, but I haven't read enough of the literature because I'm a bit of a skeptic, which I want to I talk about uh, yep. in discussion. But uh, their argument is to decouple GDP from energy uh, growth, which has never happened in the past, and uh, therefore what you could have is a rising GDP with a constant amount of energy consumption, or you could have a constant GDP with a falling amount of energy consumption. And of course, given where we've got to, the latter has to be the target, and that is the vision they have of having a constant level of GDP and then basically working to redistribute income rather than trying to increase the income and have a declining uh, energy pressure upon the planet. Right. So that means, let me give you an example to support that. Japan, for example, even though they are a low growth uh, economy, they're still a fairly innovative economy. And I think that's because they spend money on education. There might be something to learn there. But they're working on uh, plastic cars that are going to halve the weight of vehicles. They're calling it iron to polymer cars. Uh, And that's obviously good for the environment. Half the weight of cars, half the energy consumption. Well, not exactly an exact match, but certainly a lot less. It is feasible. I mean, there, there are because when you think about when, when you're using energy, uh, then, then for example, you could have the old-fashioned uh, dark satanic mills that uh, with, with the world of Smith, uh, which were so bad that John Baptiste say on he gave up on his pilgrimage to go and visit uh, Smith's birthplace in Edinburgh because he couldn't stand the pollution, uh, and that was enormously wasteful use of energy. Now, of course, we have much more efficient. Um, power stations, so you can go in that direction. But do we just drive twice as far in our plastic cars? Pretty much. This is the trouble. I mean, whenever you have a, a, a increase in efficiency, you could therefore use less. But what tends to be the individual uses less, but collectively you use more because more people go on the roads and so on. Mm. And uh, and so the whole idea of being able to decouple GDP from energy consumption, I think, is. It, it's got limited legs at all, and generally speaking, it's a fallacy. Right, but if if because we're trying to obviously trying to make sure we use energy efficiently and also put a ceiling on it, then we so we start to charge more for petrol, for example. It would, is is one way we we deal with it now. Um, we could just add more to the cost of petrol and say, but you know, you but you can you, you're going to be the same as you were before because cars are half the weight. So we can tr- put a ceiling on the consumption. Well, we can try and say, well, okay, it's more efficient, but we're going to stop you using it more. So so the net benefit is is a gain for us. We can do stuff like that through taxation and the like, can't we? We can, and that's some of the ideas that are in, called, called in the in the, no, in the no growth movement. But I think ultimately. Uh, the the real problem with the no growth movement alone, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, it's something I you know emotionally support um, because we have gone far too far in our 
damage to the planet already, we have to reverse direction. And the philosophical orientation of no growth is a is a definite improvement. What what the whole thing, as you mentioned earlier on, the whole idea about growth is, oh, it makes us all feel better, so we don't need to worry about the distribution of income. Now, of course, we do need to worry about the distribution of income. Yeah. And part of the no growth movement is to say that we can actually all the mass majority of us can get better off if we have a distribution of income from the wealthy towards the poor. And the trouble is that raises all the political hackles of human society. And uh, well, why is that? Know. Why is that happening though? Why? Because I mean, whether we are consciously saying, "Well, let's move to a low growth society," or not, we are moving to a low growth society. I mean, I, I suspect the only reason we're, you know, some economies are growing reasonably well. Well, look at Australia, for example. The only reason the Australian economy is growing is because the Chinese nation is growing so quickly, and the reason the Chinese nation is growing so quickly is because there's so many people there that are that are moving from a, a developing nation to a, a developed nation. So, uh, so once everyone is a developed nation, I suspect whether we like it or not, we're at a, a, a low growth or no growth economy, aren't we? And when that happens, we do see when it, when growth slows, the uh, the rich poor gap widens. Why is that? Oh, I'm not sure that that is true, mate. Oh, really? Okay. I think it's more a power, a power thing. Um, it becomes more obvious in that situation, perhaps, because one thing that keeps you quiet, and this certainly happens to the, in China, uh, is that people are willing to shut up about the levels of inequality there and the levels of corruption because the average position is improving radically. Right. They've got well. hope. They have hope, in other They've words. They've got hope, yeah. yeah. If you lose the hope, then you stop you, you stop biting your tongue about that bastard down the road who managed to get his uh, his uh, uh, large block of land because he's of his uh, partnership with the guy who's the, the communist mayor of your, your local town. So um, the politi- political pressures come up, become more obvious when you – when you stop growing, and then in that situation, if you if you really do have the rapacious capitalist and rapacious uh, bureaucrat side of of politics applying, um, then they don't cease being rapacious when the growth stops, and, mm. and it becomes much more obvious they're ripping off the rest of the people. So it becomes more sharpened when there's no growth, but it, it isn't enhanced by no growth. But are we are we moving whether we like it or not? Whether we're c- campaigning consciously for for no growth, are we moving that way anyway? Well, we are going to have to when the climate so the climate comes back and bites us. In but a it big seems way. to be happening anyway, doesn't it? I mean, we're we're seeing slow growth. We're not seeing economies pick up in any great. No, way. no. In fact, uh, the rate of economic growth in America is hitting about four percent right now. Right so. now, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Through yeah, through so. massive fiscal stimulus, and now the signs it's weakening, and it, you know, so it could be back down to yeah. uh, to low levels again. But there's no, there's nothing uh, aside from climate change. Uh, there's nothing that would stop. The, the continued pursuit of growth and capacity for it with improving our technology, improving how much energy we can turn into into a useful workforce in the planet. The limit is that we can't do it on the planet. Mm. And that's what's the, the no, that's the main motivation of the, of the no growth movement to say we should actually abandon this quest for, for more prosperity uh, per, per head in the aggregate level, stabilise at the level we have now and redistribute what we've got and then uh, use the energy resources of the planet more efficiently. Right. My problem about it is where that, that would have been a good idea in 1975. But we've <laughs> when the Mr. Growth was written. We're yeah, literally yeah. 40 years past that point. So if you look yeah. at the one of my one of my favorite, I have a lot of measures of non-orthodox measures of the state of the world. And one of my favorites is called the human ecological footprint. And uh, that's that was a way of, of trying to quantify the pressure we, we as a species are putting on the planet uh, by seeing how many Acre, you're converting various forms of inputs into human uh, 
life into acreage. So obviously, uh, it's easy if, if you look at the amount of uh, potatoes we eat, then you're converting an acreage of potatoes into how many potatoes we consume per person. And you then work out our potato load. You can do a similar thing, a rather more complicated way for uh, all our transportation, our, uh, our clothing, et cetera, et cetera. And in doing that, he, he worked out, the uh, researcher who did this, I think the first time was back in the 1990s, worked out in about 1975 to 80, we passed the point where the human species alone, it was not including all the other animals that, that aren't derivative of us. So this is, you know, including the pigs, but not including the, uh, the lions. Um, we are using, and, and, and for that matter, the bacteria, uh, we are using, we were using one planet per year in about 1975-80. Now we're using 1.6. So if you're actually going to do the genuine no growth thing, you have to have something of the order of a, of a, of a 40 to 50% fall in living standards. Mm. And that is politically impossible unless it's physically impossible to avoid. Well, you mentioned redistribution before, so it would be a, uh, a bigger fall for some than for, for than for others, presumably. But, of course, the ones at the top aren't going to want to do this because they have the most political influence. So, And that's the problem. We, we, the, the whole idea of no growth it, it, as a movement is is fine for those. Like it's, it's very much the sort of thing which appeals to and makes sense to somebody in a, in a, in a middle-class income. Uh, and that's the people that you, if you look at Kate Raworth's concept of the donut economy, those are people who are well and truly in the middle of the donut. They've got, they're, they're, they're not consuming too much themselves right now because they're not massively wealthy. Uh, they've got sufficient to live comfortably, so they're not feeling pressures of starvation. But the people who drive the change in human society are the ones on the inside and the outside of the donut. The ones on the inside are the ones who are not getting sufficient. They're the ones who want growth now, and that's the Chinese economy, obviously, and India and so on. They want to get to the stage where they are in the donut and having a comfortable lifestyle. So their pressure's all for growth. And then on the other side, the, the, the Rupert Murdochs are so far outside the donut, they might as well be eating, eating their donut from another planet. Uh, and they're not about to let go of the, of the opulent lifestyles that they have, and they have the political clout to hang on to them. But for, so, mo- but for most of us, I mean, a, a falling lifestyle, I mean, what does that mean really? So uh, because, of, you know, the, to me, the biggest falling lifestyle would be to have to move to a smaller house because the, so much of what you've got tied up uh, in your money is, is, is related to the, to the property you're living in. That's, that's, that's the real measure. I mean, you might have to have smaller meals, uh, go out less often. That's small bickies compared to uh, to your property, which determines how most of us live. Well, in fact, not much will happen on the property front. Yeah, you? so, so, if there's, what, yeah, what, so what, a falling life rationing. What you might get, I think you will get mm. a serious rationing. Right. And I'm not talking, um, I mean, I'm talking, mm. you know, the, the levels of rationing we saw back in the Second World War. Um, to reduce the burden we're putting on the planet. That's uh, because people talk about if we, we, we reach the crunch. I saw one, one person on Twitter saying well, many more have going to have to work in energy consumption and food. No, that won't happen because pretty much we're useless uh, in, in the production technology of today. You don't need more labor to do that. What you're going to have to do is use, use less energy doing it, which means the amount available will fall, which means there'll have to be rationing. Right. So uh, you can only buy a new iPhone every five years as opposed to every two years, that sort of thing, and eat less. Um, well, and, 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 and you can only buy one, uh, one we steak a, a week per person right. or maybe one steak a month per person. You may have to, uh, you know, we've got to use chicory rather than coffee. I mean, we're talking second world. I'm, I, I am envisaging we'll be facing second world war levels of rationing or worse once it becomes obvious how much of a reduction in energy need we have to have. 
But are we ever going to reach that conclusion? Are we ever going to make those sacrifices? Because, I mean, isn't one of the problems that if you've got, if, if we want to use energy more efficiently, then we've got to uh, be innovative. And to be innovative, we've got to have innovators. And to have innovators, we've got to reward them. Yeah, and and uh, if, and we've, then, if we've not got yeah. any growth in the economy, then they're not going to be able to be rewarded. So they're going to go, well, why bother? I'll just uh, sit at home like everybody else and uh, eat my gruel. No, in fact, one thing you'll see is, is Second World War again, levels of innovation where you're doing it for the, for the national national benefit and you're being given the resources you need to do it in the process. That's where the Enigma machine and computing came from. Uh, that's where, the, where, where nuclear power came from. That's where the jet engine came from. Of course, thank, thankfully, the Germans didn't get there first. Um, but all, all these things... Talk to me at a time of national governments with no politics. Everyone's, uh, everyone's doing, fighting for the one side, for the common good. Yeah, and that's um, we're going to be fighting for our existence as a species fundamentally. So I think uh, that, that to me, the, 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 I, I like the political flavour. I, li- I like the mood that comes out of the no growth society, but I don't see it as being politically feasible to implement because there'll be such pressures from the middle of the inside the donut and outside the donut to stop it happening. It's people within the donut who argue for. Uh, a, a no growth society, yeah. and then the technical capability, the technical feasibility of doing it, uh, is is just limited because even though we have there's huge amounts of waste in what we do, you know, cars on the roads, you know, causing congestion for other cars and so on. Uh, in terms of the individual elements of technology, we are getting fairly close to high efficiency levels, maximal efficiency levels already. So, for example, if you, if you install LED lights in your house which I'll be doing in my new place, um, those lights are already almost as close as you can get to being 100% efficient, not in terms of they're obviously generating waste energy, but there's no real capacity to generate photons with less energy input than you have in an set of LED lights. So there's no technology to make it even lower than that coming along. We've reached the limit. A similar thing applies in in, 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 in technology and in, in power generation and so on. Um, so we're reaching limits already, and with people saying, "Let's get past, let's go further." And the point is, in an engineering sense, in a lot of ways, we're close to the limits, the maximal levels of achievable efficiency already. Right, but let's put those LED lights along the floor because they look nice. Don't serve any purpose, but they look, just look nice. They, that gets us back to the example, doesn't it? If, if things get yeah, cheap, yeah, cheaper, you, we you just we just have more of it. Wall and LED lights because <laughs> you can now do it. You know? No. Nope. Yeah, yeah, and that, and and so it goes on. We have that that problem that you just want more of what you can have, even though if it if it gets cheaper, the banks. How we get to that that stage? I mean, banks are going to be one of those groups that are never going to allow us to move to a, a lower growth economy because they make so much money issuing new loans. So, uh, you know, they're expecting their six percent increase in loans or whatever it might be per year. Uh, they're going to collapse if they don't get that, aren't they? Yeah, and that's, they're, they're, they're not, they're not going to be the ones that finance the type of technological change we need to survive the damage we've done. Well, they don't now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, more than half goes on home loans, doesn't it? You know, it's yeah, uh, and then the, the day that's over. I mean, and that's a, one of the one of the most uh, striking sentences I ever read is in the book Dynamic Economic Systems by John Blatt. And I must actually put that on my Patreon website as well. I've got it on my debt deflation uh, website. Uh, Blatt made the comment that 
speaking as a mathematician, looking at the state of economics when he was writing about 1980, he said the, the, the excuse that economists use for using equilibrium methods is that you've got to walk before you crawl before you can walk. And he said, but what if a grown man is still crawling? He said the state of economics dynamics is so primitive that it is possible that capitalism itself may cease to exist before economists understand its dynamics. Now, I think we're approaching that. I think when, when, when we realise what we have to do as a species to reverse the damage we've done to the climate and to make life sustainable on this planet, return to a potential for sustainability, you won't in any sense be calling it a capitalist economy. It'll be a command economy of some description, like a war economy. And then we'll have to learn what the dynamics of a, of a, of a market economy are after, fundamentally, in that sense, the market economy as a capitalist economy. Uh, Steve, why don't you go the whole hog here and say it's going to be a one-world government doing this because we can't mm. have sovereignty and competition for resources. Uh, are we going to get okay, – why, yeah. why don't we go I the mean, whole hog? I don't, I don't think it'll be a one-world – there's no way we're going to get to a one-world government, though we may have to have a consortium of governments like we have with the Allies against the Germans back in the Second World War. But what I do expect is that if it, if it becomes obvious in the next 10 to 15 years that there's – we are seriously on a, on, a, on a path towards extinction, uh, given the damage to the climate, then I expect one of our nation states, and the most likely candidates, of course, are, are China, America and China, will simply make a unilateral decision to cede the atmosphere to prevent, to reduce the amount of sunlight falling on the planet by the order of two degrees. And uh, they'll do it. And, and of course, who cares what Nepal thinks in doing it? But when you do it at that global scale, then you do have very, very different in impacts on different uh, regions of the planet. And all sorts of hell will break loose in terms of domestic uh, conflict between nations when that happens. So that's like, uh, that's the, uh, that's the ultimate, that's the only ultimate solution you're saying. I mean, is that, is that, is, is that feasible? Is that something that's actually been discussed? It's feasible. It's, it, we don't have the technology for it, but there's been technology being discussed in engineering circles. Uh, that uh, there's a range of particles you could use uh, to seed the atmosphere to, to prevent the um, radiation, the reduce the amount of radiation landing on the planet, and right. and, of, and, the, and the targets are of the order of two to four degrees. Right. So we're going we're going on to talk about climate. This all relates to, obviously to climate change. This need for, for yeah, growth. Yeah. But, but we we touched briefly on the fact that you know you, uh, I said we've we seem to have been going through a period of low growth lately. Uh, and okay, maybe it is maybe it is picking up. It's showing signs of picking up in Japan, but Japan has been on low growth for decades now. So why, why have we had this prolonged period of not seeing economic growth? If if you know if that if that is the real ultimate driver for capitalism, because the financial system got us constipated on debt. That's why, no. and that's Japan's case in particular because Japan's debt's primarily corporate debt, not household debt. Even even with the housing bubble back in the nineties. Corporate debt's the major part of it. With that large amounts of corporate debt, corporations weren't borrowing to invest. They were, they were using whatever profits they got to, to manage their accounts. They've now fallen down to a debt level about 160% of GDP, having peaked at 225%. And at that level, they're now capable of investing to some degree. So you've got some growth occurring, uh, along with also the impact of all that government spending with the, uh, you know, the, with the bond financed expenditure. So... Um, but the, 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 they, were, they were in no growth for 25 years because of the impact of the financial sector, not because it was a decision to live in a, a no-growth society. And, yeah, they lived through it. You know, I mean, was there, was there real hardship in Japan? It seems like they still sent people to schools. They've got a good level of education, and clearly they are innovating. They are, you know, Japan hasn't changed that, uh, that culture. Uh, they are still the inventors of the world in many ways. 
Yeah, um, not as much as they were when they could actually finance their inventions. But yeah, they, they, but because they were always pretty much through the Koretsu system, they were debt financed rather than equity financed. But yeah, they just they survived as a society. But they have one thing which um, it helps them do that, and that's it's you know it's fairly racially, ethnically, and culturally homogenous society. And what you had was uh, you, you know, people would be. Uh, unemployment rose from about 1% to about 5%. Of course, 5% was a target rather than a tragedy for most other countries in the world. Um, so there was unemployment, there was homelessness and so on. Um, but it never got quite as severe as we've had in the West. And you didn't have the same degree of social breakdown, like lack of cohesion to begin with in the West, where you blame the migrant, blame the, uh, blame the victim type stuff. Uh, that occurred to some extent in Japan. But Nowhere near as bad. It was it just basically the growth engine disappeared and they were stuck on a pretty much constant nominal GDP for the last 25 to 30 years. So it can be done, but it requires a far more cohesive society than we have in any other nation. So if, so what do, so governments need to change their focus. They need to focus less on GDP or they need to say, well, our aim is a GDP of 0%. And we want GDP to do growth. that at uh, sure. GDP growth of zero percent, but we want to do that in a way that is going to minimise the loss of our standard of living, which means it has to come from innovation. Which surely means the government then has to say, "Well, okay, we need to invest in education and innovation. We need to put a lot of resources behind trying to fix how we're going to maintain our standard of living." Which yep. which gets down to how do we make greater use of energy? Yeah. And uh, and how do we how do we said the target would be uh, zero change in energy consumption, and actually negative change in energy consumption. But uh, that then means that there's a you know in effect the only way you're going to do that effectively is is rationing and forceful redistribution of income. And in both cases, I can't see that done being done in a peaceful sense. I can only see it happening when it becomes critical in the same sense that rationing was critical during the Second World War for England. And it's also a lot easier to be done in a country where they don't uh, supply their own energy and having to buy it. Countries that are rich in energy resources, that's very hard for them to be told, uh, well, uh, you know, don't make any money out of digging it out of the ground and shipping it on because we want the world to use less. That, that's, that's a big call. Like Australia, for example, the Australian economy is entirely dependent on doing that. And so is the Saudi Arabian economy. Yeah, of course. So uh, give the Saudis some credit for something. They're actually building some of the world's biggest uh, uh, solar solar farms now uh, to try to replace their consumption of oil with solar energy instead because, of course, they've got tons of solar energy as well. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's <laughs> we're living in a very interesting time in humanity. In fact, of course, obviously, it's too interesting. Mm. Um, but I see we are just going to carry on the way we are for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, aren't we? And then bang. Yeah, I think it's uh, we, we, we are, we, we, the brick wall was pointed out to us 40 years ago by the limits to growth. And we're going to smash into it in the next 10 to 20 years. Right. But of course, the answer that's always given by uh, by detractors to, to this argument is that we always find a way. Limits to growth was sort of written in the 70s and we're saying, you know, in 10 years or whatever, we we're going to hit that brick wall. Now, here we are decades later. We'll find a way. No, well, actually, a prediction of a crisis when twenty. When you look at the, the the plots and go back and take a look at your chart, I think the time limit between twenty thirty and twenty seventy was when they saw in limits to growth. Oh, right, okay. One, one sense or another. So we've still got you know fifteen years almost to go to the start of when they said we're going to start seeing serious breakdown. If their timing is right, uh, which is quite likely, then um, the detractors who abuse them are going to be seen as people who abuse probably one of the greatest works of intellectual uh, vision in the history of humanity. 
I must go and read it again. It's on the bookshelf. Yeah. I'm going to get it out. We've, we spoke about it recently. I'm going to, and I was going to do it then. I'm, I'm going to do it this afternoon. I'm going to uh, delve into the limits to growth. Uh, and uh, that'll cheer me up for the rest of the day, as has the last half hour. Uh, we need to choose a more cheery subject, something perhaps a bit more short term next time. Steve Keen, uh, we'll catch you then. Okay, Matt. Good. I tell you what, it should make me happy. I just uh, read this morning that I live in the second happiest place in the UK. Uh, the happiest place is South End on Sea. So you have to think they have to change their methodology somehow. Look, we'll be back again next time with another edition of the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.